Chapter Four of As We Forgive Them by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four, which traverses dangerous ground. Are you really suspicious, Mabel, that your father has been the victim of foul play? I inquired quickly of the dead man's daughter, standing pale and unnerved before me. I am, was a direct, unhesitating answer. You know his story, Mr. Greenwood. You know how he carried with him everywhere something he had sewed in a piece of chamois leather, something which was his most precious possession. Mr. Leighton tells me that it is missing. That is unfortunately so, I said. We all three searched for it among his clothes and in his luggage. We made inquiry of the luncheon car attendant who found him insensible in the railway carriage, of the porters who conveyed him to the hotel, of everyone in fact, but can find no trace of it whatsoever. Because it has been deliberately stolen, she remarked. Then your theory is that he has been assassinated in order to conceal the theft? She nodded in the affirmative, her face still hard and pale. "'But there is no evidence whatever of foul play,' recollect,' I exclaimed. "'Both medical men, two of the best in Manchester, declared that death was entirely due to natural causes. I care nothing for what they say. The little sachet which my poor father sewed with his own hands, and guarded so carefully all these years, and which for some curious reason he would neither trust in any bank nor in a safe-deposit vault, is missing. His enemies have gained possession of it, just as I felt confident they would. I recollect him showing me that little bag of wash-leather on the first night of our acquaintance, I said. He then declared that what was contained therein would bring him wealth. And it certainly has done, I added, glancing round that magnificent apartment. It brought him wealth, but not happiness, Mr. Greenwood, she responded quickly. That packet, the contents of which I have never seen, he has carried with him in his pocket or suspended round his neck ever since it first came into his possession years ago. In all his clothes he had a special pocket in which to carry it, while at night he wore it in a specially made belt which was locked around his waist. I think he regarded it as a sort of charm or talisman which, besides bringing him his great fortune, also preserved him from all ills. The reason of this I cannot tell. Did you never ascertain the nature of the document which he considered so precious? I tried to do so many times, but he would never reveal it to me. It was his secret, he would say, and no more. Both Reggie and I had, times without number, endeavored to learn what the mysterious packet really contained, but had been no more successful than the charming girl now standing before me. Burton Blair was a strange man, both in actions and in words, very reserved regarding his own affairs, and yet, curiously enough, with the advent of prosperity he had become a prince of good fellows. But who were his enemies? I inquired. Ah, of that I am likewise in utter ignorance, was her reply. As you know, during the past year or two, like all rich men he has been surrounded by adventurers and parasites of all sorts, whom Ford, his secretary, has kept at arm's length. It may be that the existence of the precious packet was known, and that my poor father has fallen a victim to some foul plot. At least that is my firm idea. If so, the police should certainly be informed, I said. It is true that the wash-leather sachet which he showed me on the night of our first meeting is now missing, for we have all made the most careful search for it, but in vain. Yet what could its possession possibly profit anyone if the key to what was contained there is wanting? 
"'But was not this key, whatever it was, also in my father's hands?' queried Mabel Blair. "'Was it not the discovery of that very key which gave us all these possessions?' she asked with a sweet womanliness that was her most engaging characteristic. "'Exactly. But surely your father, shrewd and cautious as he always was, would never carry upon his person both problem and key together. I can't really believe that he'd do such a foolish thing as that.' "'Nor do I, although I was his only child, and his confidant in everything relating to his life. There was one thing he persistently kept from me, and that was the nature of his secret. Sometimes I have found myself suspecting that it was not an altogether creditable one, indeed one that a father dare not reveal to his daughter, and yet no one has ever accused him of dishonesty or of double-dealing. At other times I have noticed in his face and manner an air of distinct mystery which has caused me to believe that the source of our unlimited wealth was some curious and romantic one, which to the world would be regarded as entirely incredible. One night, indeed, as we sat here at table after dinner, and while smoking he had been telling me about my poor mother who died in lodgings in a back street in Manchester while he was absent on a voyage to the west coast of Africa, he declared that if London knew the source of his income it would be astounded. But, he added, it is a secret, a secret I intend to carry with me to the grave. Strangely enough, he had uttered those very same words to me a couple of years before, when one night he had sat before the fire in my rooms in Great Russell Street, and I had referred to his marvellous stroke of good fortune. He had died, and he had either carried out his threat of destroying that evidence of his secret in the shape of the well-worn chamois leather bag, or else it had been ingeniously stolen from him. The curious, ill-written letter I had secured from my friend's luggage, while puzzling me, had aroused certain suspicions that hitherto I had not entertained. Of these I, of course, told Mabel nothing, for I did not wish to cause her any greater pain. In the years we had been acquainted we had always been good friends. Although Reggie was fifteen years her senior, and I thirteen years older than she, I believe she regarded both of us as big brothers. Our friendship had commenced when, finding Burton Blair, the seafaring tramp, practically starving as he was, we clubbed together from our small means and put her to a finishing school at Bournemouth. To allow so young and delicate a girl to tramp England aimlessly in search of some vague and secret information which seemed to be her erratic father's object was, we decided, an utter impossibility. Therefore, following that night of our first meeting at Helpstone, Burton and his daughter remained our guest for a week, and, after many consultations and some little economies, we were at last successful in placing Mabel at school, a service for which we later received her heartfelt thanks. She was utterly worn out, poor child. Poverty had already set its indelible stamp upon her sweet face, and her beauty was beginning to fade beneath that burden of disappointment and erratic wandering when we had so fortunately discovered her and been able to rescue her from the necessity of tramping footsore over those endless, pitiless highways. Contrary to our expectation, it was quite a long time before we could induce Blair to allow his daughter to return to school, for, as a matter of fact, both father and daughter were entirely devoted to one another. Nevertheless, in the end we triumphed, and later, when the bluff, bearded wayfarer came to his own, he did not forget to return thanks to us in a very substantial manner. Indeed, 
our present improved circumstances were due to him for not only had he handed a check to reggie sufficient to pay the whole of the liabilities of the cannon street lace business but to me on my birthday three years ago he had sent enclosed in a cheap silver cigarette case a draft upon his bankers for a sum sufficient to provide me with a very comfortable little annuity burton blair never forgot his friends neither did he ever forgive an unkind action mabel was his idol his only real confidant and yet it seemed more than strange that she knew absolutely nothing of the mysterious source of his colossal income together we sat for over an hour in that great drawing-room the very splendor of which spoke mystery mrs percival the pleasant middle-aged widow of a naval surgeon who was mabel's chaperone and companion entered but left us quickly much upset by the tragic news presently when i told mabel of my promise to her father a slight blush suffused her pale cheeks it is really awfully good of you to trouble over my affairs mr greenwood she said glancing at me and then dropping her eyes modestly i suppose in future i shall have to consider you as my guardian and she laughed lightly twisting her ring around her finger not as your legal guardian i answered your father's lawyers will no doubt act in that capacity but rather as your protector and your friend ah she replied sadly i suppose i shall require both now that poor dad is dead i have been your friend for over five years mabel and i hope you will still allow me to carry out my promise to your father i said standing before her and speaking in deep earnestness there must however at the outset be a clear and distinct understanding between us therefore permit me for one moment to speak to you candidly as a man should to a woman who is like his friend you mabel are young and well you are as you know very good-looking no really mr greenwood she cried interrupting me and blushing at my compliment it is too bad of you i'm sure hear me out please i continued with mock severity you are young you are very good-looking and you are rich you therefore possess the three necessary attributes which render a woman eligible in these modern days when sentiment is held of such little account well people who will watch our intimate friendship will with ill-nature declare no doubt that i am seeking to marry you for your money i am quite sure the world will say this but what i want you to promise is to at once refute such a statement i desire that you and i shall be firm friends just as we have ever been without any thought of affection i may admire you i confess now that i have always admired you but with a man of my limited means love for you is entirely out of the question understand that i do not wish to presume upon the past now that your father is dead and you are alone understand too from the very outset that i now give you the hand of firm friendship as i would give it to reggie my old schoolfellow and best friend and that in future i shall safeguard your interests as though they were my own and i held up my hands to her for a moment she hesitated for my words had apparently caused her the most profound surprise very well she faltered glancing for an instant up to my face it is a bargain if you wish it to be so i wish mabel to carry out the promise i made to your father i said as you know i am greatly indebted to him for much generosity and i wish therefore as a mark of gratitude to stand in his place and protect his daughter yourself but were we not in the first place both indebted to you she said 
if it had not been for mr seaton and yourself i might have wandered on until i died by the wayside for what was your father searching i asked he surely told you no he never did i am in entire ignorance of the reason of his three years of tramping up and down england he had a distinct object which he accomplished but what it actually was he would never reveal to me it was i suppose in connection with that document he always carried i believe it was was her response then she added returning to her previous observations why speak of your indebtedness to him mr greenwood when i know full well how you sold your best horse in order to pay my school fees at bournemouth and that you could not hunt that season in consequence you denied yourself the only little pleasure you had in order that i might be well cared for i forbid you to mention that again i said quickly recollect we are now friends and between friends there can be no question of indebtedness then you must not talk of any little service my father rendered to you she laughed come now i shall be unruly if you don't keep to your part of the bargain and so we were compelled at that juncture to cry quits and we recommenced our friendship on a firm and perfectly well-defined basis yet how strange it was the beauty of mabel blair as she lounged there before me in that magnificent home that was now hers was surely sufficient to turn the head of any man who was not a chancery judge or a catholic cardinal different indeed from the poor half-starved girl whom i had first seen exhausted and fallen by the roadside in the winter gloom End of chapter four recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com